Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. This particular Torah portion begins with a comment about Sarah, and it will end with a comment about Sarah. But the passage is really not about Sarah. But yet we call this Torah portion the life of Sarah. And there's and if you were to say, well, it's really not about Sarah, you would misunderstand the real value or the benefit of this passage of Scripture. It begins with the eulogy of the end of Sarah's life. And it says of Sarah that she was 120 and 7 years. That's the way the Hebrew says it, 120 and 7 years. And there are three distinct measurements there. Instead of saying 127 years, like the Torah says in other places, it separates out those. And in so doing, the teaching is that this was the eulogy of Sarah, the life of Sarah. At the age of 100, she had the beauty of a 20-year-old and the sin of a 7-year-old. And uh, there is probably no greater eulogy that has ever been given of a woman of God than the one that Sarah has in these simple verses. And to me, that's what really kind of sets the stage for what we call the life of Sarah. What is it that we are to learn from this passage, the life of Sarah? And I think that I'm just going to cut right to the chase and tell you that I think the reason why God specifically puts these words in the Scripture is is that he gives us an example of a believer. And those that come from her the, the uh, children that come from her, the life they walk uh, as a result of her. We could make a lot of comparisons. We could say that Eve was the mother of all living, of the human race, but certainly Sarah is the mother of the living of those who follow the promises of God. They are like the spiritual descendants, the real intended ones, the ones that God called friend you know, within this great creation. And so Sarah takes on a very, very important role for us. And as we we can understand her life by how we see the descendants live, you know that um, uh, as parents that there's a kind of a legacy that continues on with you. You know God tells us and teaches us that a man, if he does well, he walks uprightly before the Lord, that the blessing extends to the thousandth generation. But that if he sins, if he brings curse upon him, he can bring the curse onto the third and even possibly the fourth generation. And every man that I've ever known and in my own experience of my own life, fathers look to their sons as a way of extending their life, the legacy, the, the values, the, the benefit, you know, of the life. And in fact, some, some fathers want to cause their sons to rise up to fulfill all the things they wish they had done. Same thing is true of both parents. Both parents want the good things to be extended. That's the reason why parents are concerned about a children's education and which school they may go to or what profession or who they will marry. It's because we see our life extending forward into it. So part of the answer of the life of Sarah is to examine those that came after Sarah and what happens with them. So thus begins the portion, the life of Sarah. Now, it will conclude after the story of Rebekah in chapter 24 and verse 67. Then Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into his mother Sarah's tent 
and he took Rebekah as she became his wife. He loved her. Thus, Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. It's still talking about the same subject that we read in the first verse. So everything that's going to be in here is somehow connected, somehow part of the, the evidences that will explain certain things to us about the life of Sarah. Before we go to that, next verse, verse 2 of chapter 23, I want to back up just a few verses so we get the full context of what's getting ready to be said. Abraham, in chapter 22, has taken Isaac up for what is called the Akita, the binding of Isaac. He took him up to Mount Moriah, bound him, and was ready to slay him. God stopped him, pronounced this final blessing upon um, Abraham, saying that because I now see you obey my voice, therefore I will bless your seed, you know, all the families that come forth from you. And having just said that, it says, verse 19, So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now, Beersheba is a place down in the Negev wilderness south of Hebron. And I want you to take note of, at the death of Sarah... Verse 2, chapter 23, And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. At the moment of their death, they were not together. Abraham is in Beersheba, and she is in Hebron. We don't know necessarily why. But it may have played into the events that just preceded, and it may well have played into the events that follow. Now it goes on to say, verse 20 of the previous chapter, Now it came after these things, it was told to Abraham, saying, Behold, Milcah also has borne children to your brother Nahor, Uz his firstborn, and Buz his brother, and Kamuliel, the father of Amran. And it goes on a little bit further, and it lists off some of Abraham's family that's back where he originated from. And in two weeks' previous portion, this is where Abraham had come from. He had come from his father's house. He'd come to the land of Canaan. But now he's getting an update on his in-laws, his other family. And it's going to play into what is going to transpire here very shortly. Because it goes on to say that as he goes to bury Sarah, that he will then make the decision, having buried her, to get a wife for Isaac. So hold on to that thought, remembering this this introduction here, and let us go on in to see what is said in chapter 23 about how he buries Sarah. Verse uh, 3, chapter 23. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to his, the sons of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And the sons of Heth answered Abraham, saying to him, Hear us, my lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our graves. None of us will refuse you his grave for burying your dead. So Abraham rose and bowed to the people of the land and the sons of Heth. I want you to take a time out for a moment. What land are we talking about here? Wasn't it the land that was promised to Abraham and to his descendants? Yet Abraham is giving great homage and protocol to the sons of Heth. Now, the sons of Heth, as we'll find out later on, are some of the ancient Hittites. 
There was all those different peoples living down in the Canaanite land. And uh, Abraham is going through quite a bit of protocol here to render the proper honor and eventual payment for a land that God has said he's given to him and to his descendants. So another set of questions begin to emerge. Why is Abraham doing this? And it goes on to say, verse 8, And he spoke with him, saying, If it is your wish for me to bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and approach Ephraim, the son of Zohar, for me. Interesting, because Ephraim is present while he's saying this. Abraham is saying, hey, if, if you're really serious about that, I need you to speak to this man. By the way, that man is present and is hearing the words. That he may give me the cave at Machpelah, which he owns, which is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence for a burial site. Now, Ephraim was sitting among the sons of Heth. And Ephraim the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the sons of Heth, even of all who went in at the gate of the city, saying, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Abraham bowed before the people of the land second time. And he spoke to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, saying, If you will only listen to me, I will give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Then Ephraim answered Abraham, saying to him, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver. What is that between me and you? So bury your dead. And Abraham listened to Ephraim. And Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver, which he had named in the hearing of the sons of Heth, 400 shekels of silver, commercial standard. So Ephraim's field, which was in Machpelah, which faced Mamre, the field and the cave which was in it, and all the trees which were in the field, that there were within all the confines of his border, were deeded over to Abraham for a possession in the presence of the sons of Heth before all who went in at the gate of his city. And after this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. The Bible, this is the first time that we see that there's an actual deed an actual purchase of a piece of land. And I wanted you to take note of the fact, wait a minute, wait a minute, the land was promised to Abraham and to his descendants. Why is he purchasing this? It is obviously because there will be future consequences for this. And Abraham is being very wise and not falling prey to a few vain words, but making sure that things are going to be wisely and appropriately done. I want you to take note of something with regard to this. It was purchased from the sons of Heth, the ancient Hittites, not the Philistines, not the Romans, not the Greeks, not anybody, somebody who owned it way back a long time ago. And today... This piece of land 
is still contested for in the land of Israel. Today, down in Hebron, there is the cave of Machpelah. There's a synagogue in the bottom and a mosque built on top. And it's being contested to this very day as to who owns it. And is the issue between the sons of Abraham who claim to be versus other sons of Abraham who claim to be. And it's probably one of the most volatile places in the world that exists today. The Bible will go on to describe two other pieces of property that were bought by the sons of Abraham. The burial place of Joseph uh, up in Shechem was purchased by Jacob. And David purchased a piece of ground, what we call the Temple Mount today, from Ornan the Jebusite. The Bible only delineates the purchase of three pieces of ground in the land of Israel specifically, and those three pieces of ground today are hotly contested and Jews, Israel, are not permitted to use them freely. It's really quite ironic. I believe that God intended uh, to emphatically point out these issues so that um, in other generations, namely ours, that we would see the nature of the competition and the nature of the contention that goes all the way back to these days. What is relevant today in the land of Israel was the same relevancy that happened with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the same God that was involved with them in that land issue is the same God that's involved with us today in the land issue. And so there's great connectivity between us and them, not just because we're descendants of Abraham, but because the very pieces of ground being contested are the very issues of our present day. So I don't think it was an idle thing that God specifically went through this and delineated it for it to be written by Moses. I also want you to take note of the great wisdom of Abraham here in dealing with these negotiations. You know, the first offer was, he comes in and he says, oh, I need a burial place for my, for my family. And the others make this magnanimous gesture. Oh, just choose any one which you wish. Just, just pick one, whichever one you want. You, you can have it. Well, gee, that's nice, but you know what? I don't believe you. And by the way, Abraham was right to not believe, because even though he did purchase it, other men have come and contested it and still won't accept the deed that is registered clearly in antiquity. So had he not purchased it, had he not specifically gone through to pay the price of 400 shekels, you can imagine we would have lost claim to it a long, long time ago. There would have been the enemies to come in and try to steal it and take it, and we would have had no, it, it would have been a little bit like, you know, when you go down to the store and you have the defective merchandise and you say, hey, I'd like to get my money back. And they said, do you have your receipt? No, no, I, I, I lost that. Oh, sorry. You know, it's a little bit like that story. And it's a good thing that Moses recorded for us the deed so that we could understand the nature of the uh, problem and the contention. The manner in which that he speaks to the third person, like Ephraim is not really present, but he knows he's present, so he's obviously speaking it in a very diplomatic way 
so as not speaking directly to him, but speaking where he can hear. And he says, oh, but if you could compel Ephraim to sell me that. And, of course, Ephraim, you know, everybody's sitting there. Well, he's sitting right here. And so Ephraim speaks up and he says, oh, I give it to you. Oh, no, 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 no. No, I, I, I ask that you just sell me a part of it. Just sell me the field part. Oh, well, if you want the field part, well, you know, I mean, that's, you know, why would you and I, princes, leaders of many, having many servants, why should we have an issue of 400 shekels before us? Oh, that's the price. Okay, you know, so let's pay the price. And then it says everybody else is a witness. More specifically, the Hebrew word there, it says they deeded. It's, it actually means they ratified that all other witnesses became witnesses to this transaction. Abraham didn't want to just go and negotiate with the guy. He wanted to negotiate with the guy with witnesses. You remember uh, our former president, President Reagan, when he was negotiating very difficultly with uh, then the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, and he kept using this one phrase, trust but verify. You remember that phrase? Trust but verify. It's a little bit like Abraham. Go ahead and make the deal with Ephraim, but let's get witnesses to it. You know what I mean? So we can verify it. And it speaks to, really, to he knew the men that he was dealing with. And to set the, the uh, thing up correctly, he knew he would have to go to these links with many witnesses for it to be done. Otherwise, there would have been a future dispute um, with the people there in the land. Because why would he be doing that? Because he knows there's a day coming when God is going to fulfill his promise to him and is going to give the land to his descendants. And somebody, and obviously they're not going to willingly agree to this. I mean, God has made this wonderful promise. To you, Abraham, and to your descendants, I will give you the whole land. Does that mean without controversy? Obviously not. There will be controversy. But God will prevail in the end. And so he knows there will be these future controversies. He's trying to lock down these pieces to go along with it that will be consistent uh, with what will be going on. The point that I would like to draw out for you and what will also come out in this next story in the portion is if we really are the sons of Abraham and the God that he served is the God we serve, then the relationships and the agreements and the way those agreements were made with Abraham extend to us. That it's, we are a continuation of, we're not a new thing to it. We are a continuation of the relationship that God had with Abraham, not a new relationship. So the manner and the way things happen are consistent with us. The point that I would like to make to you, let's say that God says to you, gives you a promise of your life, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to do certain things in your life. That doesn't mean that you don't have to go to school. That doesn't mean that you don't have to get a driver's license or other things along the way that are consistent with those things that you know God is going to have you to do. That doesn't mean that you don't have to work for a living or be responsible for your behavior or whatever those kinds of things. In fact, all of those things that we're talking about are part of it. They're part of it. One of the things that has always been kind of a shock to people when they get into some of the deeper Hebrew study is to find out that the word work in the Hebrew is the same word for worship. 
You mean when I go to work, I'm worshiping God? Uh Uh-huh. Now that verse makes a whole lot of sense. And whatsoever you do, uh, do it as unto God and not unto men. And even if whether you go to work and whether you go to school or whether you labor or whatever, do it unto God. In other words, see as God is part involved of your life to increase your herds and cr- multiply you, bless you, and so forth, that, that you're, you're walking the same way Abraham did. Now, Abraham went to the land of Canaan, but I'm still telling you, he had a lot of servants, and he still had to take care of a lot of goats and a lot of sheep. You know, he had to feed them, take care of them. You know, the whole, that, that was part of it, too. And here, the purchase of this particular plant, part of the land is also part of the promise that he, he, he and his descendants would receive of this land. Now, he has purchased the land. He has buried um, Sarah. And now, what do I do with my son? Isaac. What is needed here? What obviously happens, this is somewhere the, the, you could spawn a lot of um, Jewish myth off of this, but I, Abraham says, well, it's time for Isaac to have a wife. And so he brings in Eliezer, his uh, main servant, and asks Eliezer to uh, participate in a particular task. Chapter 24, verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in every way. And Abraham said to his servant, the old of his household, who had charge of all he owned, Please place your hand under my thigh, and I will make you swear by the Lord, the Lord God of heaven and the God of earth, that you shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I live, but you shall go to my country and my relatives and take a wife for my son Isaac. You remember when we first started this passage about Abraham and heard about his descendants living back in the land. So he's referring to that house. He's going to dispatch Eliezer to go back to those others, and he will be going back to specifically a certain man's house looking for a particular woman. He doesn't know this quite yet, but he knows this family connection that is there. And so Abraham is saying, I want you to go there and get a wife from there, not from the Canaanites, not from the people of the land. There's always been a lot of discussion about what is this custom of putting the hand under the thigh, you know, where you'd make a vow and and you would put the hand under the thigh. Well, in biblical terms, the thigh, and this is true too physically, the thigh of your body is your most fleshly content, maybe other than your, your rear. But this is all considered to be the thigh, okay? This is where the greatest amount of flesh of your body is. And so it is said that when a man takes a vow where he puts his hand under the thigh of another man, what he's basically saying is he's putting himself subject to the man, saying, if I do not fulfill this vow, then may those who come from your flesh come and hold me accountable. In other words, literally from the flesh of you, those descendants of yours come and hold me accountable for failure to keep this vow. And that's what Abraham's saying. I want you to... Eliezer, come put your hand under here because if you don't do this, then my flesh will rise up, you know, to hold you accountable for this. So it's more than just a kind of a word agreement. It's saying that two multiple descendants were going to make this agreement. Um, 
And you can tell that Eliezer is very concerned about making this vow. He's very concerned about how can I complete such a thing because he doesn't want to be subject to this penalty and uh, have not made a good faith effort. So he's interested in understanding how it is that he is to make this good faith effort. And so the pressure is now put upon Eliezer. I've got to find, you know, I've got to find a wife for my master's son. How many of you would like to take on that job? <laughs> you know, someone you, a close friend, someone you really love and appreciate, and they've got a fine son. And this good friend of yours asks you and says, oh, by the way, he said, you know, I want you to go find a wife for my son. And you can you imagine all of the things you would have to go through, you know, to do it. And Eliezer has been charged with this responsibility to do it. And he says to him, he says, um, verse 5, he's now listing off um, Eliezer saying, uh, well, suppose the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Should I take your son back to the land from where you came? Wouldn't it be best if your son went and picked her out? I mean, you want me to pick her out? I mean, look at me. I mean, why would some woman follow me to come back for somebody she's never seen before? You know, pretty good question. Pretty reasonable question. In fact, it's a good enough question to say, don't you think that's impossible? I mean, how could you ever expect any reasonable woman follow me to go marry your son? And you're compelling me to do this. And so he says, wouldn't it be better for me to take the son there, let them kind of check him out, and, and then we'll figure out one that goes from there. Verse 6, then Abraham said, beware lest you take my son back there. It's almost like he has a sense of he understands his in-laws. I don't want my son to go back there and get involved with those people. I got out of there. I want my son to stay out of there kind of thing. Verse 7, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and who swore to me, saying, to your descendants, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you and you will take a wife for my son from there. In the same way, Eliezer, that God took me out of that house to bring me to this land, God is going to take you to go back and meet this requirement. That's a very interesting statement. And you will take a wife for my son from there. And I want you to take note, verse 7, he will send his angel before you. God will direct you in this matter. It's, you're not, a, it's not your task to do, Eliezer. I'm asking you to be the faithful servant, and God will lead you in this task. Eliezer is going to get stretched here just a little bit uh, in terms of believing this and walking in this way. But the, obviously, this is the way Abraham has been walking. Well, stop and think about that for a moment. I mean, he did come out into the land, and we have heard from the previous portions all of the events that did take place in the land, there in the land of Canaan. And in particular, um, his involvement with Lot and his conversations with the Lord about Sodom and Gomorrah, walking through the land, building altars, all kinds of things. And it says that God appeared to Abraham, you know, in those places. So he has learned to walk with the angel of the Lord before him, with God's messenger and leading right there with him. And he says, Eliezer, go and do the same thing. The God that serves me will lead you in this task 
that's going to take place. And then what follows here is a very detailed account of a man being led by the Spirit of God to accomplish a very specific task. So the servant placed his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten camels from the camels of his master and set out from a variety of good things of his master in his hand, and he arose and he went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Why take all of those good things and why take ten camels? I mean, if God's going to lead you, why take the ten camels and all those good things to take? I mean, doesn't it mean when God leads you, you don't need any of that other stuff? You don't use that other stuff? Oh, contraire. That's part of it, too. The daily work and how you would indicate your protocol and how you would behave with other people is also part of what God is doing. You're part of what God is doing, too. Why ten camels? Why not nine camels? Or for that matter, 11 or 12 camels? Why not 20 camels? Why does it say he took 10 camels? Because this is one of the first references to the number 10. And within the Torah, every time we see the number 10, you can put a little note there beside there, and it's teaching you the spiritual theme, confidence in God. Confidence in God. Every time you see the number 10, you will find this is the symbolic reference to whenever someone is trying to learn to walk confidently or be confident in God's leading, in God's doing. If a man were to keep all ten commandments, he would be confident before God. Did you know that? There wouldn't be any issue. Can I approach the Lord? Am I in good standing with the Lord? Am I upright before the Lord? If you keep the ten commandments, you are, you know you are. Thus, you build confidence toward God. And in this case, Eliezer will take ten camels, and obviously some other servants, and he loads them up with good things of his masters in his hand, and he goes off looking. Verse 11, And he, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of the water at evening time, the time when women go out to draw water. Eliezer knew that. Eliezer knew what the custom of the land was, and he works with the custom of the land, not opposed to it. Well, I think I'll just go there uh, when I won't see anybody. You know, we'll just have to make somebody come up. No, no, no. Work with it. Don't work against it. Work with what is happening. And he said, O oh Lord, now he turns it over to the Lord. O oh Lord, the God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show loving kindness to my master Abraham. He's not asking for himself, is he? He's a faithful servant. He knows what happens to his master happens to him. What happens to him happens to his master. So he's asking on behalf of his master because he knows he'll be the recipient of it. He says, for my master, behold, I am standing by the spring and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now may it be that the girl to whom I say, please let down your jar so that I may drink and who answers drink and I will water your camels also. May she be the one whom thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And by this, I shall know that thou hast shown loving kindness to them, my master. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Time out. 
Eliezer has been tasked to go get Isaac a wife. Now Eliezer says, no, Lord, you have appointed a young lady for Isaac. I'm just the servant here to get them connected. It's really your purposes we're here to work at, God. It's really for my master's purposes that we're here to work. This is a key clue to you. When you go to do the service of God, one of the things that we have to recognize is God is a whole lot more interested in getting this job done and getting it done right than you are. Oh, we got to go out. we got to see these people get salvation. we got to go. Brother, I have news for you. God is way more interested in getting those people saved than you are. Yeah, we got to do it to this standard. We, I mean, we, we've got to do this well, you know, amongst ourselves. We've got to do it to this standard. Brother, God is a whole lot more interested in getting this job done well more than you. So rather than you putting yourself in the forefront, let's do it my way. The real humble servant, the one who's really walking with the Lord, says, I don't care what my way is. Let's do it your way, Lord. If you want these people to be saved, you save them. I'm just going to be your servant here to do whatever you want me to do. You want to do it to this level, uh, we'll do it to, your, to what you decide to be the level, not what I decide to be the level. In my own personal confession to you, and I, and I have to tell you this is the way I've learned to do this. If the Lord wants you to be broke, be happy. It's for your benefit. If the Lord wants you to be rich, well, then you beg God and ask him to help you. You know, and say it's God's reason and purpose that he has done this. In whatsoever you do, say it's God's purpose. Let's just do God's purpose. If he wants to make you successful doing this, then let the Lord do it, not you. Or if it doesn't work out, it's okay. That's what the Lord intended. You know what will happen if you'll just start walking that way? If you'll just start walking before the Lord, looking to his will, you'll be at peace. You won't drive yourself nuts. Trying to work to some standard. Trying to accomplish something that can't be accomplished. Putting all kinds of stresses on your life. If the Lord wants, and by the way, the Lord does want... If the Lord wants your children to grow up, be healthy, prosper, be successful, and so forth, why don't you just let him do it? And you just work cooperatively with him to do it. Don't set standards for God on other people's lives, your children's, your lives, and so forth. Just go the way God wants to do it. Now, when I first began this ministry, I can remember that, that first day prayer. It was the first day that I had never had a paycheck in my entire adult life. I mean, when my father raised me up, he had taught me to always have a job. There has been at moments when I have had multiple jobs all at the same time, but I've never had a moment where I didn't have a paycheck coming in, that I didn't have an employment, a job at some time. And here I was at the start of this full-time ministry, and for the first time in my life, an adult man, I don't have a paycheck coming in. And there was a kind of a quaking moment in my spirit that one morning. And I remember praying and saying, Lord, um, you know, not for me, my children. I'm, I'm, I'm asking on behalf of my children. You know, I, I need you to help, Lord, 
uh, you know, with the situation for my children. And I remember that particular moment that it was in my spirit. The Lord just kind of reached over and just kind of popped me on the cheek. Kind of jolted me to reality. And in my spirit, the Lord said, I've been taking care of your children the whole time, Monty. Well, you think I'm just starting today? Oh, that's right, Lord. <laughs> that's right. You mean when I had that job and everything, you, I was working with you, remember? And you were, you were taking care of my kids back then. And so whether, if I don't have a job right now, you're still on the job taking care of my children. Yeah, that's right. I always was there. I'm always doing it and I will continue to do it. And I was taking care of you too, Monty. And so it doesn't make any difference what you're doing. If you just keep doing what I tell you to do, I'll take care of you too. That's a whole lot better way to live than to go around in fear, for the fear of being a failure, not doing something correctly or properly. I really identify with Eliezer here with a huge task before him, the burden of trying to get the proper, I mean, can you imagine this if he gets the wrong one? The misery that will come from this. I mean, he's like, you know, how do I find one to begin with? And secondly, how do we know it's the right one? You know, I mean, you know, and, and, and this, and I work at this house, and this is my job, and my retirement is going to go right down the tubes because the flesh of Abraham is going to come back to get me for this. You know, you can, so how is he going to get through this? Well, he's got to appeal to hierarchy. Lord, this is really your business. You're the one that really wants Isaac to have a wife. I mean, I think I want him to have a wife, but you really want him to have a wife. And you want him to have the right wife. You know, I would like him to have the right wife, but I know you want it more than me. So I'll defer to you on how to do this and to do this properly. So his prayer is in the nature of completely directed toward God's purposes and his master's purposes. Verse 15, And it came about that before he had finished speaking, that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Abraham's brother, Nahor, came out with her jar on her shoulder. And I want you to take note of this description of her. And the girl was very beautiful, a virgin, and no man had had relations with her. Those are not redundant expressions. Those are three different specific descriptions. And this is the first time that you will find the biblical definition of the word virgin. It does not mean she had had no relations with a man. Those are two completely separate thoughts. You could be a virgin in the Bible and be married. Because virgin meant a woman of God. That's what the word really means. In this context, virgin means a woman of God. The same term can be applied to men, a man of God. In fact, that's what it means up there in Revelation 14 when it makes reference to the 144,000. They are virgins. It doesn't mean that they have not had sexual relations. It means they're men of God, just as it means here. Now, in our Western culture, we say the word virgin, and we think it means something having to do with a sexual orientation. No. Virgin can include sexual orientation because sexual orientation is part of purity. It's part of virtue. 
But what it's really talking about is she was a virtuous woman. She was beautiful. She was virtuous. And she also had never had any relations with a man. Those three descriptions. The reason I point that out to you is because one of the uh, contested passages, Isaiah 7.14, with regard to the prophecy that the Messiah shall be born of a virgin, that we use the westernized definition of virgin and get all befuddled in the biblical definition of it. The truth of the matter is that the prophecy said that, that the Messiah will be born of a woman who has never had sexual relations, never had a normal husband in the way we understand it to be. That's really what it was intending to say. And that was what would be the sign. I draw attention to that because in the previous passage, you remember Abraham beyond age, Sarah beyond the age of bearing, gave birth to a son, Isaac. Which is the greater miracle? To have Abraham and Sarah beyond the age of childbearing have a miracle son. Or to have a young woman who is of childbearing age, Mary, have one without sexual relations with a man. Which is the greater miracle? They're both miracles. But it is no miracle if she bears children at the age of bearing children by normal means. There's no miracle there. And just as Isaac was a special promised son who is explained to us in our heritage in the covenants, so the Son of God comes as a special son by promise, a son by promise just as Isaac was. And this particular passage is helpful in particularly sorting out those issues with Isaiah 7.14 and some of the uh, complaints, if you will, criticisms that comes from the rabbinical community trying to say that it doesn't deal with this. This is a clear reference that shows the word virgin is separate from that and so that you can have that proper understanding. It goes on to say now that, verse 17, Then the servant ran to her and said, Please let me have a drink of water from your jar, just as he had prayed to the Lord. When I ask for a drink, I need her to give me a drink and then voluntarily offer to bring water to the camels. That was a wonderful condition for him to pray for because it would clearly demonstrate that this young lady is very hospitable, very helpful, is not selfish with her time or her energies. And this is what we need. We need the same trait and characteristic because we know Abraham to be a very hospitable man. His son has been trained to be hospitable. We need a mate for Isaac that would have this predominant characteristic, showing hospitality, an opportunity to serve another, and if will she take it. And so the story goes on that that's what happens. Verse 19, now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Very interesting statement. Do you know how much water a camel will drink? We're not talking about pulling a jug out for each animal. I have heard it said that these basic jars, there probably was 10 jars for each camel. 10 times 10, a hundred times more than what she drew for him. So this is no minor act of hospitality. 
that is about to be done. This is a very dramatic effort to also serve the water to the camels until they finished drinking all that they want. And so it would have been pouring the water into the trough, water into the trough, water into the trough until they are done. And these are ten big camels that are going to do it. It says that while this is going on, for instance, it shows the word virgin is separate from that. And so that you can have that proper understanding. It goes on to say now that, verse 17, Then the servant ran to her and said, Please let me have a drink of water from your jar, just as he had prayed to the Lord. When I ask for a drink, I need her to give me a drink, and then voluntarily offer to bring water to the camels. That was a wonderful condition for him to pray for, because it would clearly demonstrate that this young lady is very hospitable, very helpful, is not selfish with her time or her energies. And this is what we need. We need the same trait and characteristic because we know Abraham to be a very hospitable man. His son has been trained to be hospitable. We need a mate for Isaac that would have this predominant characteristic, showing hospitality, an opportunity to serve another, and if will she take it. And so the story goes on that that's what happens. Verse 19, now when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw also for your camels until they have finished drinking. Very interesting statement. Do you know how much water a camel will drink? We're not talking about pulling a jug out for each animal. I have heard it said that these basic jars, there probably was 10 jars for each camel. Ten times ten, a hundred times more than what she drew for him. So this is no minor act of hospitality that is about to be done. This is a very dramatic effort to also serve the water to the camels until they finished drinking all that they want. And so it would have been pouring the water into the trough, water into the trough, water into the trough, until they are done. And these are ten big camels that are going to do it. It says that while this is going on, uh, verse 20, So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran back to the well to draw, and she drew for all his camels. Meanwhile, the man was gazing at her in silence to know whether the Lord had made his journey successful or not. Now, he had prayed this. He had asked God to help in this manner. It seems to be working. But rather than making some bold declaration, he's, let's see it all the way through. Let's see her complete the task all the way through. And I think that's another indication of of the right and proper service uh, before God. There's an, a certain attribute we're, we're talking about here, a certain quality. It's one thing to um, say that you're going to do something that would say you're going to help or serve some other brethren. It's another thing to actually go and complete all of it. I've met a lot of brethren who say the right thing and get started well, but don't quite follow through. And there's a totally different 
uh, kind of relationship with the brother who says, who does it, and completes it. And so that's what he was trying to do. Well, let's see if it's more than just lip service. Let's see if it really happens. She offered to help. Now step back and let her. Let's see what she does. Are you aware of the fact, brethren, that every time you go to help someone, you're being spiritually evaluated? Even if you willingly, voluntarily, offer to help someone, some of your brethren, the way that you do it and the way you complete it or don't complete it will be the measure of you before the Lord. Particularly if you volunteered of your own. It's one thing for a man to ask and another man agree. It's a totally different thing for a man who was never asked to agree and volunteer to do something and to see if he will complete it. It really is the measure of what kind of man you are before God. And in this case, Eliezer is wise enough. He had obviously supervised many servants, had trained many servants. He's now valuating. He sit back and he's watching. Let's just see what happens here. And as a rule of thumb, I have found it generally that in the case of of leadership, particularly wise leadership, the hardest thing there is for a leader to learn is to trust. Let them do it. I mean, you you know, you got to go out and help them to a certain extent, but there's a certain point where you just got to step back and you got to say, you got to give this person all the elbow room in the world to either fail or succeed. Let's just, let's see what they do. And in fact, they teach in leadership, you've got, if you're not willing to let them have the room to fail, then you're not leading. Leadership is not coming in and rescuing them every time. Leadership is also determining where they really at so that you know how to use and work with them in the future. And Eliezer is stepping back, leaving her to just do as she wishes so that he can observe completely and make his decision in the end. Let's see if she completes it. She offered, that's wonderful, but let's see if it gets done. And so he does that. Verse 22, then it came about when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for a wrist weighing ten shekels in gold and said, whose daughter are you? Please tell me, is there room for us to lodge in your father's house? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. Again, she said, we have plenty of straw and feed and the room to lodge in. Then the man bowed low and worshipped the Lord. Why? Why worship the Lord at that moment? Because he's now acknowledging, God, obviously you've put me on this path. I am seeing the evidence that you have led me here, that you have brought these people into my path. And that you are the one who's in charge. You're accomplishing your task. I'm just your faithful servant here. And we will see this repeatedly over. He will bow low and worship the Lord as he realizes what the Lord is doing there. Several years ago, when I first made my first trip to Israel in 1996, I became suddenly aware of just how God's purpose was involved in my trip. 
It was my first time going to Israel. I had a special sense of going. In fact, the brethren that I was going with, they all had this special sense that Monty has a special sense of going. So they were like all eyeballing me to see how I was going to react when I got off the plane, whether I would just fall on my face and kiss the tarmac or what was I going to do. But there was a moment within our second day that we were there in the land of Israel, and I've shared this story with some, but it's a good example for me of identifying with Eliezer, our servant here, that we were up on Mount Carmel, and it was uh, we had gone up and seen where Elijah had uh, dealt with the prophets Baal. And uh, uh, Brent Avery, the brother who was with me, had just cracked that dumbest joke I've ever heard in the Holy Land uh, when he asked, uh, you know why the 400 prophets of Baal died on Mount Carmel? And I said, no, why, brother? And he said, because they couldn't make Baal. And we were at that moment in that stupid joke uh, there on Mount Carmel when I had this sense of, before the Lord, that we should stop, that we should stop in the shade there on the top of Mount Carmel. And I asked the brethren to stop, and we stopped, and we were standing there in the shade, and I started, because I had the sense of the Lord wanted me to see something. That's all I had the sense of. It was like the Lord wanted me to look around. And so I began to look around, and I don't see anything that's catching my attention. I'm so impressed with this feeling, I stopped the other guys that were traveling with me. I said, guys, I said, this is going to sound kind of strange, but I have the feeling the Lord wants us to look. There's something he wants us to see. So I said, everybody look. And so, you know, there's four guys, and we're all looking, standing in the shade, looking at this little Arab village up here on the top of Mount Carmel. Don't see anything. I asked him, I said, do you see anything? No. Do you have any sense of anything? No. Hmm. Well, I wonder what that was. It was only then later that night when we were down in the city of Haifa and our hotel reservations had fallen through. I don't know quite exactly what happened, but it didn't work out. And uh, the brother that was down there, he did not have adequate room for us to stay at his house. And so he had gotten on the phone and started calling around places that we might be able to stay and had finally reached one place. It was a special ministry hostel um, that was set up by the uh, some church, but it was in a very unique place. And it was very difficult to get directions to go and find. And, and first of all, a lot of things are hard to find there in Israel. and They're not like American citizens. But in any case, as he began to describe to us, he says, gee, I don't know how to even give you the directions to this place. He says, "Um, it's up on Mount Carmel. It's across the street from a new Paz gas station, and it's one little little entrance. There's a little gated thing, and it's called Stella Carmel. And we looked at each other, and we said, we know exactly where it's at. Because the Lord had parked us right across the street from that that day, and it said, look. And that was my first experience in the land of Israel, suddenly discovering the Lord was walking with us. And he knew where we were going to be, and he knew what we needed to do. And so he literally stopped, like Eliezer, stopped paying attention to what's coming out, these ladies coming out and so forth. He told us to stop and pay attention. That was only one of a half a dozen incidents that happened in that first week in Israel that were just like that, that showed the Lord knew we were there, was walking with us and directing our attentions accordingly and leading us. And the sense that we had from it was, as a result of seeing his leading, was all that we wanted to do was bow low and worship.
you know, we recognize God's presence was there with us and that he was guiding us. And so when we read here, verse 27, and he said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master, Abraham, who has not forsaken his loving kindness and his truth toward my master. As for me, the Lord has guided me in the way to the house of my master's brothers. He knew exactly where they were at. And therefore, he has led me and caused the circumstances of my life to be exactly as that. For some of you, you have heard me make the statement before. There are no more happenstances in my life. There's no more circumstances in my life. I believe that every person I meet, every decision that's being made, every frustration, every blessing, whatever it is, it's part of God's plan. There's a purpose to every bit of it. And it is a totally different kind of walk, brethren, to be stumbling along in your life. And oh, once every six months, you acknowledge God's presence in your life or you give him a half a thought versus every day you believe that nothing happens to you that isn't according to his divine order. Including frustrations. You know, to hone us and improve us. And to get us to think, you know, and readjust accordingly to be a part of his plan. Now, there are other men who are guided by other things and other circumstances in the midst of that going on. Verse 28. Then the girl ran and told her mother's household about these things. Now, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. And Laban ran outside to the man at the spring. And it came about that when he saw the ring... And the bracelets on his sister's wrists. And when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, This is what the man said to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, Come in, blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside since I have prepared the house and a place for the camels? That's a lie. Laban hasn't prepared a place. So why is he saying that? It's because Laban sees the dynamic of what's going on here. He can detect there's a blessing involved here, and he wants the blessing. He doesn't want to walk with the Lord necessarily, but he sure wants the blessing. And Hey, I saw enough gold on her finger and enough gold on her wrist. I'm, I like the blessing here. And so let's just go ahead and play along. Play along like, uh, oh, yeah, I'm spiritual. I'm walking with the Lord. Oh, blessed of the Lord, come, you know. You know, a little gratuitous, don't you think? He don't even know the man. But he knows certain things of the man, and so he's attempting to exploit it of the man. Same kinds of things as Ephraim back in his negotiations with Abraham. Oh, what is it that 400 shekels should be amongst men of, of our stature? Only I really want 400 shekels. I want the 400 shekels. Only I want to say it in such a way that it doesn't sound like I said I wanted it. And in this case, Laban is in the atmosphere of those who are servants of the Lord and wants to be a part of that community, but he really has other interests. And we would, and as we will find out, Laban will be a character who will play out with Jacob, who will be constantly cheating Jacob and uh, trying to exploit the life of Jacob. Later on here, he's trying to figure out what advantage can I get out of my sister? 
And if you look the way this conversation goes on, when it comes down to the subject, oh, that my sister's going to be leaving, well, great, fine, you know, get her out of here. Um, you know, what do you got for me, though? And suddenly the idea, it's okay for her to go as soon as he gets his gifts. And so it goes on to say here that how uh, Eliezer, Abraham's servant, recounts the entire story. Verse 35, and the Lord has greatly blessed my master so that he has become rich. I'm sure Laban was glad to hear that part. And he has given him flocks and herds. Oh, that's wonderful. Silver and gold, servants and maids, camels and dogs. Yes, let's have Rebecca go there so I'll be related and I'm certain we can work something out in the future. Can you see Laban's wheels working here? You know, what is my advantage here? Can I tell you an interesting story? Since I've gotten into the ministry, I have had a number of occasions, and this is more than one, where certain brethren, none from the local area, have come up to me at various times when I have been ministering and said the following kinds of things. I had one gentleman come up and say, Brother, um, I believe the Lord would have me to make a certain kind of investment. I'm going to give you $300,000. And uh, I want you to invest it however you see which. And whatever the investment makes off of it, you get the investment, and all you have to do is return the principal. Sounds kind of interesting, doesn't it? And instantly, the Lord said to me in my spirit, don't believe it. The guy's trying to buy you. He's trying to buy you. He is trying to play within the idea of blessings of the Lord, but he's really got other things working. And he's trying to, what he's really trying to do is exploit your attentions. Trying to give, see if he can put a little hook into you and see if he can get a little more attention out of you than what you would normally get. Now, I'm happy to share my time and energies with whoever saints want to come. You don't have to buy it. You don't have to beg. Just come. I'll, you know, such as I have, I give. But he came expressly for the purpose to see if he could get a leverage position. I had another person come up and say, they want to give me a million dollars. They were getting an inheritance. They want to give me a million dollars. And it was clear that their purpose was because they wanted to have a special standing with me. They wanted to be able to call when they want and talk to me and other kinds of things like that. And you can see the examples here in the scripture of different people with different agendas and different reasonings for why they would be in these communications. And obviously, if you're going to serve the Lord and you're going to display the blessing of the Lord, certain people are going to want that. They're going to want some of that with you. And they're going to want to command your attention, and they're going to want to command uh, your, your interests so that they can get it, because they think that's the way you get it. They think that's the way it works. They're kind of like Laban, looking for the advantage in whatever it be. And obviously, that is not what is walking before the Lord. That's not walking by faith. And that's not what God intends for us to do. If you find yourself tempted in the course of your spiritual walk to exploit 
something that you think God is doing for your advantage, you are on the wrong side of the tracks with the Lord. And in this case, we can see that Laban's behavior is very inappropriate with regard to these things. He's not interested in Abraham and Abraham's son or God's will being done here or what would be best for his sister or what would be best for Eliezer. He's trying to figure out what would be best for Laban in this matter. And he's just jockeying for position. Later on, we'll see that whole story. We'll learn more about Laban's wife when, uh, when Jacob will be coming forth and dealing with him. And it goes on to say that uh, as, as Eliezer describes the circumstances and he recounts what the Lord had done, that it becomes very obvious that what has transpired here, Eliezer coming, Rebecca coming out, is obviously something that the Lord is doing. In fact, it's concluded for us in verse 50, Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The matter comes from the Lord. I mean, even they could see it. Even though Laban's got this ulterior motive, even he admits, obviously God is doing something here. You know, God has a purpose, and you coming, Eliezer, has a purpose for Rebekah's life. And as it concludes here, Rebekah receives a blessing uh, before she goes. And verse 59, it says, Thus they sent away their sister Rebekah and her nurse with Abraham's servant and his men, and they blessed Rebekah and said to her, May you, our sister, become thousands of ten thousands. May your descendants possess the gate of those who hate them. Which is a wonderful blessing, by the way, you know, to send Rebecca away, of which we, as we look down through the descendants of there, we see that God has certainly fulfilled that blessing, that God honored that blessing that was upon Rebecca's life. Then Rebecca arose with her maids, and the amount of the camels followed the man, so, so the servant took Rebecca and departed. Now Isaac had come from going to Berlahai Roy, for he was living in the Negev. And Isaac went up to meditate in the field toward the evening, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when he saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. Then she took her veil and covered herself. The circumstances of their first meeting, obviously, is of the Lord, too. I mean, it sounds like some kind of a Hollywood script. You know, here's the one on the far horizon. Here's another one on the far horizon. And they come together and they greet for the first time. And you see the sun setting and they live happily ever after. You know, kind of thing. No, no, it doesn't work that way. What it's trying to illustrate to you is God's still present in this process. God even appointed the time that he would go out into the field to meditate. Have you ever thought about that? You go out quietly to have a moment and you suddenly realize God intended me for to come out here and have a thought. That's walking with the Lord. That's walking by faith, not by sight. When you realize that everything that's happening to you is of the Lord, that he literally knows every step that you take, knows every thought you think, every feeling that you have, and that he's part of the process. The biggest thing is for us, I think, in that process is to let him in and accept him. Accept us. Accept us, you know, and accept that this is the life that God gave you and that he's there 
instead of lifting up artificial standards and say, well, I'm not really there yet. You know, and after I get to a certain level, then I'll let God in and we'll get it all together. No, no, no. God's already there. God already is there. He already knows about your life. Just accept it. I think one of the most wonderful prayers that you can pray is to just say, thank you, Lord, for my life. Thank you for the life you gave me. Doesn't have to be a big, spectacular life, or just thank you, you know, for the life I got to live. You know, the people I got to meet, the friends I got to have, the family I got to be a part of. Thank you, thank you that you gave me life to be a part of it. I think when you begin to pray that prayer and you really think that prayer and it's sincere, then you begin to see God's presence in your life. And it concludes our story and our portion by saying that then Isaac brought her, Rebecca, into his mother Sarah's tent. He took Rebecca, she became his wife, and he loved her. Thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The sequence there is the opposite of what the world tells you to do. The world tells you, no, you fall in love, then you take her to be your wife, you get married, and then you take her. Only in the case of Isaac, it's the opposite. He took her, he married her, he loved her. And I think the reason why that is, because this is the real sequence that takes place. The plain fact of the matter is, when a guy gets married as a young man, he is so overwhelmed with his emotions and feelings that if you just tell him to jump, you know, skip three steps, you know, wear purple, he'll, he'll just do it. I mean, he's in love. You know, everything is caught up in his emotions. And after he has gone through all of the public ceremony and so forth, and he is finally now with his wife, and he has taken his wife, then he suddenly realizes, he wakes up one morning in bed, and he says, oh, my goodness, what have I done? You know, and he looks back over the previous six months or a year that's been going on, and he says, oh, my goodness, I courted her. You know, I got married. I asked her to marry me. Uh, I, I went through the whole ceremony thing. And here I am, I'm married now. I'm, 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 I'm her husband. And it, there's a magical thing that begins to take place. That's when he says, oh, this decision I've made for her to be my wife, i I got to get serious about this decision. <laughs> about, okay, she's my wife now. You know, and he starts making plans. Then, after that, then he falls in love with his wife. Then he begins to really value her for who she is and what God has put into his life. But truly, I believe that when God says that, you know, when a man receives a wife, he receives a good thing and he receives unmerited favor from God. I don't believe that any man ever figures that out until after he's all the way been married and then he falls in love with his wife. Then he suddenly realized, oh, my goodness, God had this in mind. God, God was purposing this in my life. And the thing that I've always enjoyed about that is, is that for all my best efforts to be a husband, to be married, to have a wife and so forth, uh, God really intended something for me even more than what I intended good for me. When you recognize that, gentlemen, when you recognize that God intended you to marry the lady and intended you to have her as his wife, then things will start clicking and making sense. Instead, if it's just based on you and your motives, you're going to miss it. But when you start getting God involved and understanding his purposes and that it wasn't by happenstance and it wasn't by 
adrenaline or uh, some chemical, you know, reaction in your body. It really was God purposed this to be. Then things begin to fall into place and then it begins to make sense. Amen. A lot of little practical things, but the thing that um, I encourage you about this particular passage is that when in the day's future, when you're trying to ask yourself those little practical things about, well, you know, God, do you want us to do that or that or where should we do this or whatever? Just just remember, hey, God's more interested in you being on his path than you are. And I can guarantee you he's already there. He's just waiting for you to recognize, you know, the parts uh, that he's already involved with. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion. I thank you, Lord, for the story of how. Isaac received his wife, Rebecca. How, Lord, it was obviously your plan that Abraham had some foresight into it, that Eliezer was an obedient servant in this plan, that Isaac patiently waited on you, and Rebecca had hoped, Lord, for your will in her life. And how it all came together by a whole collage of events orchestrated by you. Lord, we have many things that we have desires in our life, good things that we would desire. And Lord, we know that you are a God who withholds no good thing from us, that it is your purpose to do good unto us as well. So Lord, we would just take this story, this story of Isaac and Rebecca, and Father, we use it as a source of encouragement because, Lord, we desire to walk simply before you and to have confidence that you're involved in our lives and that you're a part of the decisions that have to be made in our life, even the frustrating, difficult decisions, that you're a part of those too. And Lord, by recognizing that you are, it helps us to be at peace. It helps us to get through the difficult times better. It helps us to enjoy the good things even longer. And that's what we would be interested in, Lord. So I'd ask, Lord, that you would cause us to be wise unto your affairs with us. And, that, Lord, that you'd strengthen our confidence in you. That there's no happenstance in our life. That like the lives of Eliezer and others, that we simply walk humbly before you. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405 405- 447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968, Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.